Oh, Captain, my beloved Captain, thanks for tuning in to 27 Rouge. Scott Newman here, at your service in the provision of a Renaissance man's guide to conversation. This week, I sit down with one of my favorite writers, David Samuels. Along with Matt Taibbi, David is one of those rare gonzo practitioners who has mastered the craft of narrative storytelling. He's written brilliant pieces on the Pink Panther Diamond Thieves, the infamous Princeton imposter James Arthur Hogue, the GameStop Kids, Neil Young, before the whole Rogan kerfuffle. And in 2012, a cover story for The Atlantic entitled Kanye, American Mozart. In early December of 2021, we spoke about his retreat into the woods, machine logic versus human logic, and the three most important words in the English language, among a whole host of other things. This is part one of my foxtrot with the man himself, David Samuels. Where do we go from here? What's the antidote to all this madness? Should we retreat like, you know, into the woods and throw out our iPhones or what's what's the antidote? I personally have done that. I personally have retreated into the woods and, and, and thrown out my iPhone. Uh, I recommend it. I think it's a great boon to, to mental health. Uh, the woods are really nice. Uh, it's really fun to walk in them. <laughs> I now spend a lot of my time in upstate New York. Uh, where I bought a big old house and uh, a lot of land. I saw and you I showed really me enjoy, pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy walking around there. Uh, I enjoy getting to know my my neighbors. And I enjoy just the uh, peace and quiet of it. But I don't think that that's necessary. And I don't think that there's any going back any more than there's any going back from the Gutenberg Revolution or you know the Industrial Revolution. I think... What's most important is for us to be aware that we're at the beginning of something, that the familiar language and concepts that we grew up with no longer can adequately explain the reality that we live in, uh, that the use of those words and concepts is unintentionally or often intentionally <laughs> misleading. Yeah. And, and, and that awareness that we are living in something new and are likely at the beginning of this new thing and that there has been a break in a set of assumptions that were familiar to us, were familiar to our parents, were familiar to their parents, that we're now living in something else. I think that that's the most important thing that people can do in order to act in ways that are self-aware, that are less likely to damage yourself or others, that are most likely to be socially beneficial. And I think in that connection, you know, one of the things that makes me most allergic to nearly everything that I read uh, that comes out of social media and that kind of discourse is this sort of certainty, this voice. It's a very ugly and off-putting voice, this kind of sneering, angry, you know, voice that gains strength from the idea that all my friends think the same thing. And then the descriptions of reality that are offered in this voice 
are so pathetically, they're distorted, they're limited, they're missing basic information and basic logical connections. And you want to say, or I want to say to people is stop it. You know, say, you know, repeat after me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How hard is that? It's actually a blessing every day that you say, I don't know. An angel comes down and and blesses you. It's just a fact. Um, Certainly as a reporter, that's true. The Mm. most powerful three words that I knew in my whole life as a reporter were, I don't know. I'd say to people all the time, do you know about how this works? I don't know. How does this work? I don't know. Explain it to me. People love to explain shit. They love to talk about what they do. They love to be in the position Mm. of telling you. And guess what? As a reporter, almost all the time, the people you're talking to know more than you do. That's why you're talking to them in the first place. They also, because they know more than you do, they know that you don't know shit. And the effort to pretend that you know stuff that you don't know is simply annoying (laughs) to people. Mm. And when I read, and again, this is without party, although more of it comes from the left because the left owns all of these institutions now. You have people lecturing about Bosnia, about vaccines, about, you know, one million subjects, race, this, that. Hey, man, you don't know. Why are you talking for for 30 million people? (laughs) Who the fuck are you? You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it, 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 it's beyond obnoxious. It, it, it's just stupid. And, <laughs> and everything that sounds like that, I know as a reporter, I'm like, A, you're an asshole and B, you don't know shit. Yeah. So how about getting yourself blessed by an angel and just saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's not. Yeah. I'm just one little transient human here on the planet earth with a few poor tools to try in some feeble way to separate bad information from less bad information, (laughs) whatever it is. And you know what? That's honorable work. (laughs) It is. It's hard enough to, it's hard (laughs) enough to do that. The only things that I presume to make statements about in public life are things that I actually reported on myself. That's why I went to go report on things in the first place was I wanted to know. I don't know. How am I going to know? I'm going to go there. Yeah. And the truth is that as a reporter, when you read something by someone who went somewhere and was willing to say, I don't know, it sounds different. It sounds like the truth. And I can recognize that sound in 30 seconds when I start reading something. Is this someone who went somewhere with the idea that they didn't know and was honestly open, whatever perspective they were coming from, because everybody comes from some perspective and has their own human subjectivity, that's being a human, right? But 
the person who shows up in good faith and fundamentally is willing to admit that they don't know shit and that they want to hear someone who does know something explain that something to them and they're willing to hear it fairly. That was the foundation of journalistic practice, of the practice that I was taught and the work that I tried to do. And to see that buried under this avalanche of sneering bullshit and PR by a bunch of people who can't bear to admit that they don't know, that they're not the world's biggest expert on, you know, playing backgammon and Bosnia and vaccines and voting machines and R&B, you know, and whatever else. It's like, no, man, (laughs) you actually don't know anything about any of those subjects. You just looked up that shit on Wikipedia. Like, (laughs) come off it. That, that, I mean, that would be a stretch even for some people. The the Wikipedia lookup would be, I think, too much work for some of these Twitter posts. <laughs> but let me just ask you two final questions and then I will release you off into the wilderness. Sure. Um, <laughs> back, back into your proverbial forest. So it looks like you're in the city now, not upstate. No, I, I, I can't tell. I, I, heard, I, I, heard, I heard sirens. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I admit to being in Brooklyn this week. I'm going back up there on Friday. So Good, good. Okay, David, talk to me about uh, machine logic versus human logic. Sure. You know, humans aren't logical. That's the thing about humans. Humans have many, you know, points in their favor. Uh, they're really interesting uh, kind of creatures to study. But they're not logical, and human logic meanders around and it makes connections between things and then backtracks and tries to figure out why those things are actually connected to each other. And there's a recognizable rhythm to the way humans think. Uh, Machines think in binary terms, and machines are great at stringing together multiple either-or statements and having them branch off into infinity and process that all within three seconds. And that's how machines think. And one of the really creepy things about seeing humans networked together by their computers, by their phones on these platforms, is that all of those platforms function according to the logic of machines. They're built according to machine logic. And so they naturally urge and intensify binaries and they force humans down those paths. And instead of arriving at some kind of lived consensus, (laughs) which is what humans naturally do, they provoke more and more extremism, more and more uh, conflict. That's what the machines thrive on. And underneath it is something that feels like a machine Mm -hmm. to which humans seem to be playing an increasingly sort of marginal (laughs) role in terms of 
directing that. It's an atomizing kind of discourse. It's an anti-human discourse. It causes unpleasant emotions (laughs) for humans. It makes them say and do crazy shit. And increasingly, the machines are in control, not the humans. It sounds like you might be hinting at too, is that the because machines have these binaries, you know, an algorithm or whatever divides you into teams. I mean, you know, on Facebook anyway, it would be left versus right. It's just sort of a perpetuation of, you know, I was reading a story the other week about someone who, I don't know, they basically made a new Facebook account and listed all their likes or interests in a particular category. And the worldview just becomes completely self-perpetuating all the pages it suggests, groups, all this stuff. Yeah, no. And, and one of the things that I'm seeing in the U.S. now is discourses in multiple areas, which it's hard to explain. You know, I guess the best word to use is the substitution of these sort of internet-generated memes, right? These sort of outcomes of binary uh, logic, uh, which are then taken as necessary conclusions or descriptions of a system of reality, substituting for attempts to ask the question, what is reality? (laughs) So people, because they take the system for granted and they take the logic that underlies the system for granted, they reach these artificial conclusions based on this artificial meme world that they inhabit. And then they move those things around like people move words around. Remember those magnetic poetry sets that you could buy at the museum? And then well, you could make a poem on your refrigerator. I've seen pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they used to be like a popular thing. You'd go to people's house and you'd see the dumb poem that they made on their refrigerator when they were Fridge high, magnets, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's how people seem to assemble accounts of reality now. And I'm watching it in the US that happening at a policy level. So it scares me. In next year, the government of the United States is going to confront three major global crises. And they may all come to a head in a single window of time, right? China making noises about Taiwan, uh, the Iranians rushing to develop a nuclear bomb, and Russia making noises about invading Ukraine, Mm. right? Now, when you listen to the supposed approaches of U.S. policymakers on each of these issues, it's this stream of memes that have been generated, premised on the idea that the U.S. controls a global system and that nobody would want to be outside of the system And therefore, everybody has to accept the terms of the system and secretly does accept the terms of the system. Mm -hmm. So any spoken opposition to the system (laughs) or plans to crack the system are simply 
attempts to maneuver for advantage within the current set of rules, which are entirely controlled by the United States. Mm. Is that true? I don't think it's true. I don't think China believes it's true. I don't think Vladimir Putin believes it's true. I don't think the Iranians believe it's true. So what happens when this set of assumptions within a self-enclosed thought world (laughs) generated by this sort of binary, self-reinforcing, algorithmic kind of logic meets the actual messy, textured, specific reality of very separate, specific individual places with their own interests led by products of their own systems who have their own personalities. That's historical thought. That's reportorial thought, right? That's not this new kind of thought. And I have a sinking feeling (laughs) that these two kinds of thought are about to collide with each other on a global scale and Mm -hmm. that something unexpected (laughs) may well result from that collision that's not going to be positive, (laughs) at least not for the United States and its allies. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like you should write a book and call it American Popular Culture and the Death of Nuance by David Samuelson. Um, it's, not, yeah. it's not nuance. It's well, the, it's, the, it's these just, binaries proliferating is what I mean. Is is you know things become self perpetuating. You end up just you know enhancing your own understanding, whatever of things, in a way that was sort of predestined by the underlying logic of the system, rather than you know reality is people, nuanced. Whereas, I mean, there's two things, right? People want to feel in control, especially when they don't actually know anything and when their experience of reality is limited and they're given large responsibilities, which I think describes most American bureaucrats, certainly at this point in time. And so people look to systems to provide them with a sense of confidence. You know, the second thing, which is sort of linked to the first, is that when systems reach a certain level of complexity, which is their goal, they stop becoming more efficient and more powerful. In fact, they become less efficient and more prone to collapse. And if you take a complex system (laughs) and you have it run by a bunch of shallow people, then the chance for a systemic collapse starts to go up. Well, if that happens... I'll uh, maybe consider. Yeah, I'm going to be on my land, man. I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to maybe <laughs> come to Australia. I'm going to move can, in with you. I'm in upstate New York. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I sleep you in the come, barn. You can, you can come visit, man. It's beautiful. We've got <laughs> streams. we got two houses. got forest. It's all dirt cheap. Yeah. You know, nobody nice. wants to live there because <laughs> but it's well, beautiful. You, you do. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll come up and visit. <laughs> I want to live there. That's right. My dog David, likes it. The dog, I can imagine he does. He can run around. It's like Thanksgiving the whole year. I imagine anyway, it's like pumpkins and Thought cows and yes. whatever. That's right. David, why are your sons your heroes? My sons are my heroes because I watch them negotiating very different sets of challenges 
in a challenging time without the security of the kinds of assumptions I grew up with. And they're very different from each other. Uh, my son, Ben, who's 16, is growing up in a, you know, educational system that's collapsing um, in a country that is fundamentally confused <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic as a, you know, young man in a country whose elites certainly have rejected uh, traditional uh, defining aspects of masculinity and decided that they're bad. Uh, and I watch him negotiate that space with great intelligence and equanimity uh, while being fundamentally curious about the future. He's learned a lot about blockchain. <laughs> uh, he's made a bunch of money in Bitcoin, but it's not the money that it seems to interest him. It's the technology, the way it works, the guarantees of privacy uh, that it offers. Uh, and he combines this sort of lively interest uh, in the world outside him with a philosophical mind. Um, and, you know, a natural 16-year-old interest in his peers. And, uh, you know, I don't think I achieved that kind of uh, balance, you know, if ever, <laughs> until I was like deep into my 40s or something. Uh, so I admire him a lot. And my younger son, Elijah, uh, suffered a brain injury uh, at birth and has had to negotiate the world without expressive language. And, you know, he understands what you say to him, but he, you know, I can understand probably 40 or 50 words that he can form. Uh, people don't know him may not be able to understand, you know, more than four or five words that he says. And he emotionally is an entirely whole person. He's very, very interested in other people. He has a good memory. He understands what you tell him. But he grew up with a lot of, you know, pretty profound limitations, not just on his ability to speak, but in other stuff that the uh, stroke that he suffered damaged, you know, fine motor uh, coordination and everything. Uh, and watching him deal with the enormous frustration of wanting to say things and not being understood and having to repeat what he's trying to say 15, 20 times. Uh, until it's understood or not. I'm close enough to him that I understand how much he feels and perceives and how much he wants to communicate and how aware he is of how limited his ability to be understood by other people is. And now the picture that I just painted seems like a nightmare, except it's not. Um, he's a fundamentally happy person who laughs. There's a tremendous sense of humor, has an amazing tolerance for other people's 
lack of skill <laughs> at being able to understand him. And again, like my son Ben, even though their personalities are very different, Ben is more cerebral, Elijah's more visceral, but they both have this tremendous sense of balance in the face of situations that would cause me enormous frustration and anger. Uh, and neither one of them is fundamentally an angry uh, person. They're like healthy, <laughs> exuberant, dominant, you know, kind of personalities, but they're not angry. Uh, and as someone who, you know, definitely in my younger years, especially struggled with anger, expressing anger, having anger, trying to squelch it, using drugs to get rid of it, like all these things, watching them deal with situations that are in a lot of ways more challenging than what I dealt with growing up and seeing them handle it so much better uh, is really inspiring for me and, and I think uh, you know hopefully has helped me become a better person and, and, and certainly inspires me to want to be better because I see them doing it every day. Mm. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for, uh, for, for chatting with me, David. I appreciate sure. it. Sure. David Samuels, ladies and gentlemen. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>